Welcome to this week's Black Men Rising podcast. Alfred is an ambassador for Cancer Research UK and he went through post cancer and he's here to tell us um, his story. So welcome, Alfred. Thank you. Pleasure. Well, welcome, welcome. So yeah, begin. Just tell us your story. How were you diagnosed? How did it come about? Well, basically in January 2012, in fact, let me go back slightly. Mm. In August of 2011, I was jogging. I was keeping fit because I was leading quite a hectic lifestyle. Uh, my work took me overseas. Whilst jogging, I felt a pain in my mid to lower back. It was a sharp pain and actually caused me to stop running. I just thought, well, maybe I've overtrained. Maybe I pulled a muscle. So I just put it down to that. Two weeks later, 1 a.m. in the morning, the most excruciating pain overtook me. And it radiated from my mid-back down to my waistline, across my hip, down my right-hand side, all the way to my feet. It was a crippling pain. In the end, I ended up in A&E at my local hospital. And for the next four hours, they pumped into me every sort of pain relief that they could. Ibuprofen, codeine, you name it, they threw at me. And nothing seemed to work. Eventually, doctor got to me, thought it was sciatica, treated me accordingly. However, said I should get my doctor to refer me for an MRI scan. Left the hospital. For the next three months, I was messed around by my GP to get that scan. Fortunately, my wife was somebody that knew her way around the NHS system, and she knew something far more sinister was wrong. I still thought it was probably something to do with my training and pulling a muscle, etc. Eventually, in January 2012, the early part, I went for an MRI scan, and I should have known something was wrong then. At the end of the scan, the technician came to me and asked me, have you been drinking something dark? Uh, to which I answered, well, no, I haven't. Not realizing that what he had seen, the spread of cancer. Anyway, two weeks after that, I went to my doctor where I was officially given the news that I had cancer. Now, he didn't tell me which type of cancer. He just said, you have cancer. Mm. So with that now, um, I mean, what do you do? You know, what do you say when you're giving such devastating news? Um, and from that point on, I started to prepare for the worse. A couple of weeks later, I went back to the doctor. And actually, this time I went with my brother to get all the necessary paperwork and the referrals, etc., uh, etc. Et I asked the direct question, how long? And I was told 
think short term rather than long term, potentially wow. six months. So with that now, of course, your whole world is turned upside down. Mm. Off the hospital, I went, I then came under the wing of the oncology department and I was immediately put on a hormone reducing agent, which is the standard treatment until they decide what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. So in March now of 2012, I was fortunate enough to get onto a clinical trials drugs program. Uh, it was called the Stampede Drug Trial Program. This was a multidiscipline, multi-arm program, and it consisted of five arms to the program. My arm was arm G, and that was abiraterone, which is also known as Zytiga, and Prostap, which is a hormone injection. And basically, I started my treatment. Now, let me step back slightly. My presenting PSA at the given time was measured at 509. Now, to put that in its right context would be to tell you that at that age, I was 53 going on 54. A man of my age at that time, my PSA should have measured between two and four. Wow. So you can imagine mm. we're talking 509. So straight away onto the program, started the medication. It took a while to set in. At that stage, my PSA had risen to over 800. Sorry to cut you there, but what does PSA stand for? Just out of interest. Uh, Prostate-specific antigen. Right. right. Okay. It's a means by which you measure the blood in somebody um, with regards to um, prostate cancer. Yeah. So that's yeah, how they yeah. talk. Yeah, because I've had previous guests on, on the podcast who have gone through prostate and have said PSA. They haven't been able to tell me sure. what, it, what it actually stands for. So it's great to know. No, thank you. No, no, you're welcome. So with that now, I am now under their care and the battle starts and i've got to tell you it was a battle i speak in military terms when i sort of say a battle a fight Um, Mm. because to me this is what i had to do i lost virtually all strength in my lower body um i was virtually walking so slow it was unbelievable Mm. i was um puffed out just walking let's say 20 yards and i would be puffed out and slowly i was going down i could feel it it could be seen within myself i had to shake myself up and begin a comeback Mm. and basically the treatment started to set in and over a six-month period I saw my PSA reduce to less than 0.1, which was wow. amazing. Wow. That's, an in- that's an incredible, I mean, what, what type of treatment was it? Um, well, basically, abiraterone is um, a series of um, drugs which basically act as a 
for want of a better word, when you look on the bottle, it kind of says a chemotherapy type of um, treatment. But basically what it did was to reduce my PSA level. And basically what it did was what was unwritten on the bottle is what it did. And mm. it, it, it reduced in combination with the ProStep injection, which was um, administered every 12 weeks. Yeah. Um, side effects were awful. Yeah. Um, oh, I and could imagine. Yeah. The strength of the drugs was as if you'd um, <laughs> put an elephant to sleep because really wow. I was like a zombie. Aggressive. It was. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It had to be. It was. Mm. So with that now, six months had passed, PSA had been brought down. Um, however, the medication had its side effects and those were kicking in. So really, I started to feel a certain way about life in general. Mm. Um, my mental health started to decline, unbeknown to me, because you do not see this coming. Basically, yeah. I just found myself spiraling out of control when it came to sort of my mental health. In what way, Alfred? Well, basically, I spent most of my days at home. I was on my own at home, and I used to call it the four-wall syndrome. Mm. Um, and basically, that's what I had around me. I had, you know, no family were around me, no friends were around me. Not that they didn't want to be, but... The thing was, is I was going through a cancer journey. Yeah. And really and truly, sometimes people want to do the best thing that they can for you. And sometimes what they don't realize, it's probably the worst thing I need. Yeah, no, I get and that. I didn't, I yeah, that. you know, um, I had enough with my wife being around me, sort of pampering me and taking care of me because she became my carer. Yeah. Um, and I really didn't want anybody influencing that. I had a sister who worked in the USA at one of the major cancer hospitals. So she was one of the senior nurses there. In fact, she was actually in charge of the nursing department. And it came to a point where when I was describing the treatment I was going through and she was trying to help by saying, well, no, you should be doing this and you shouldn't be doing that. I had to make a decision. Do I listen to my sister or do I listen to doctors here in the UK? Yeah. Uh, and for me, that was quite simple. Listen to the doctors here in the UK. Yeah. Um, you know, no, no disrespect to my sister, but I had to make a decision and I made the right decision. So really, the journey continued. And as I went on, I started to think that I could return to work. My profession was in the security industry. I was involved in uh, close protection of A-list entertainment stars. And I'd wow. been doing it for almost 30 years. But I knew that really to be involved in close protection now was a distant past. You know, I, I was finished. However, I was able to still do advanced security. And that's what I started to do is push myself in that line. I went back out on tour. I was actually with um, the artist uh, Beyonce. And wow. I went out to South America for a month. 
advancing and hit six countries in one month. So you know it was tiring. That was, it was full on. Hectic. Full on. full on. It was really full on. And at the end of it, the situation became unattainable. And I realized then that was it, finished, done. Returned back to the UK. And I just said to myself, no, can't do this anymore. And to be honest with you, I realized then I'd gone back too soon. Because you don't realize cancer saps you. It takes so much out of you. uh, And you've got to put so much more back in before you can remotely think that you can um, come back and do something anywhere close to what you were doing before. So the years passed, year one came. I thought, well, I've beaten the six months. Uh, Year two came, year three came, and I thought, what's going on here? And they themselves were amazed because the prognosis had already been given, yet I was (laughs) passing all these landmarks, so to speak. Then I decided, right, what I'm going to do, I'm going to write a book. And that's what I did. I had kept a diary of my notes with regards to my daily medication and what I was going through on a daily basis. So that helped to write the book. And I wrote my first book, Invincibility in the Face of Prostate Cancer, coming out the other side. And Mm. it talked really about my journey with the disease, who I was, my journey with the disease, and it just flowed into the diary and it allowed you to take a look into the insight of somebody who'd gone through the journey on a daily basis. Incredible. So, yeah. Yeah. so it was uh, fortunate that I did that. Mm. At the same time, I got involved with Cancer Research UK. I became an ambassador for them and I got involved in various uh, aspects of cancer campaigning. Uh, Some of this campaigning took me to the House of Commons, where I integrated with different members of parliament on both sides of the house and talked to them about aspects of cancer treatment. Um, I was involved in the shoulder to shoulder project, which was to support our NHS. I was involved in the um, anti-tobacco bill. I was involved in the child obesity program which was looking at watershedding numerous ads which encourage children to eat um, rough food, as I call it, fast takeaway type of foods. So I got involved in that. At the same time, I was also starting to be asked to do so many different radio, TV opportunities, talking about my journey, my story, and then Gradually, my story then became something that Cancer Research UK took up and there were various videos put out of which one you got yesterday. Yeah, Um, thanks for that. You're welcome. Yeah, brilliant. At the same time, I still wasn't done with writing and not long after, my second book came out, which was... um, um, (laughs) I've got to think about my second book. Mm. Uh, Dear me, Invincibility. No, sorry, second book was... um, Motivated to inspire. I had to think about that. <laughs> you forgot Crazy. your title. And, uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, sorry. Motivated oh, to inspire. So, uh, oh, wow. That's like incredible. You know, two books about your um, 
yeah. your journey you know what what sort of feedback have you got from those, those books well basically in all the people that i've spoken to in the reviews that have been led and left mm. um, people have said that spot on this is how it is and that was always good to hear because then it told me i was obviously going down the right avenue with what i was doing so yeah. clearly I got it right. With some people though, I must say, they couldn't read the full book. They told me, they said, I can't go further with this because it is so close. It, is, it reminds me so much of my journey that I can't be reminded of it. Um, mm. And that tells you how deep it was and how, what it meant to those people who were reading it. And even, in my own family, there were those who couldn't go any further. They just said, no, this is, this is too much for them. Um, but as I said, it had to be written. You have to understand, this is not stage one, two, or three. This is a stage four diagnosis. There is no stage five. And this is the real, real deal. And what did they find difficult, Alfred? What did they find difficult about? I think a lot of it was the pain, the mm. anguish, the sadness, the depression. Yeah. Um, but I think a lot of it was more so the pain. Mm. Because with stage four, when you've got bone metastases, okay, that's a different pain. I can tell you now, it's an awful pain. It's dull aching it's a pain that it's not even like a sharp acute pain mm. um because that comes and goes with this one it's a dull aching um long pain and what happens is you find yourself moaning well for me i was moaning a lot mm. because that's how the pain was it was as if I can only but tell you that that's, for me, that's how it felt. And even with medication, pain relief medication, ordinary pain relief medication sometimes did not work. So sometimes I would have to take my breakthrough pain relief medication, which mm. did work. And once you get to that level, you've got to be careful because you can then become addictive to um, the medication that you're taking. Yeah. So constantly I was being reviewed, constantly blood test after blood test, and obviously tablets after tablets. At that time in the early days, I was on something like 18 tablets a day. Mm -hmm. um, so you can imagine all of that you went through. The strength of those tablets were such that they caused me a lot of sleepless nights they caused me to just wake up sit on the side of my bed and just be looking out into i don't know where i was looking but my wife would get up and say what's wrong what's wrong i could hear her but i couldn't talk and i think wow. one of the things she yeah. was afraid of is that i had a stroke i knew i was trying to tell her something but i couldn't tell her Tell her. You know, I couldn't yeah. tell her. Um, mm. Eventually, when I went to the doctors, they said, the medication is too strong for you. 
Yeah. Absolutely too strong. So, um, so with all of those things, it's an experience to go through, but it's also something that you can actually then pass on to others. Because what I try to tell men is my journey was a journey full of ups and downs, pain, anguish, depression, uh, financial toxicity. Um, it's an array of things that could probably send the average guy potty. Um, yeah. And I don't know how I hung on, but my wife was um, an integral part of uh, my, uh, of being there for me. Um, mm. But as I said, many of those days I was by myself and there lieth one of the problems. You know, when you're by yourself, there's many thoughts that creep into your head. Mm. Uh, even the thought of suicide came to my head. Really? And that's wow. when I knew I really was in a bad way. Um, mm. And I had to pull myself back, pull myself together, and really just try and, and get through what I was getting through. And year three became year five, year five became year six. And I continued doing a lot of things, a lot of things very quietly with regards to um, men's awareness and health. Um, some things were obviously out there on a national basis, but nonetheless, I was still trying to get the message across to men about stage four diagnosis. Because in talking to one of the oncologists, he told me one of the biggest problems that he sees right now is that the men that he is seeing in his clinic, the black men that he is seeing in his clinic are arriving at stage four diagnosis. Wow. And as I said, my luck may not be your luck. Yeah. You know, so that meant to say that the potential for them to, to get through it was limited. Mm, yeah. um, I mean, I want to ask, I mean, one thing that has cropped up in these last few podcasts, and, and particularly with um, men going through prostate cancer, and I, you might be able to answer this, there's always seems to be an initial misdiagnosis. What, why do you think that is? Because that could be potentially, you know, dangerous. I mean, I'm just thinking logically here. Well, you, you say, well, you say misdiagnosis. Sometimes what happens in my understanding of the situation is that the PSA that's uh, been taken um, has been done in a wrong way. And when I mean a wrong way, sometimes you, you, you've got to know when to take the PSA because one of the, uh, periods, one of the things that you don't do is take a PSA after you've had sex the night before because it raises your PSA level. So immediately oh, okay. when you go to have it done, your, your PSA level is going to be elevated. Now, I'm not saying that that's the case with everybody. But that is one of the one of the situations that they say you then should not have um, having your PSA done. An elevated PSA does not necessarily mean you've got cancer. It could mean you've got an enlarged prostate. 
it doesn't necessarily mean you've got cancer. So again, you've got to ensure that you you stay on top of the situation. Mm. You've got to ensure that you you're frequently being monitored as far yeah. as I'm concerned. Um, and you've got to, for want of a better word, it's up to you as an individual to care for yourself now. This is mm. no longer about waiting for a doctor to come to you. Yeah. Okay. And I'll, I'll, let me base it, base this on this. I did an event um, in my borough where we invited a group of GPs. I was one of two guest speakers. The other was a urology professor um, at Guy's Hospital. We spoke to the GPs and basically my speech was really about uh, black men, the need for GPs to be uh, more of a signpost because that's what they're there for. It's the signpost you is to point you in the direction of treatment to be on top of your situation. And as we know, black men are disproportionately affected by prostate cancer. Mm. The stats are one in four black men will get prostate cancer at some stage in their life. It's one in eight Caucasian men, and it's one in 13 Asian men. Um, So that gives you an idea. An idea, yeah. Yeah. So whilst I was there, I gave a speech, talked about my journey and the need for GPs to be more involved in black men and getting them there to the surgery. The GP, one of the GPs there decided that he would listen, went back to his um, surgery, and he then uh, looked through his files, identified 60 men who potentially needed uh, for him to investigate further. Out of those 60, four men were diagnosed with prostate cancer. (laughs) Um, So that gives you an idea. And in speaking to him, he said to me, he said, it was your speech, it was what you said that prompted me to turn around and do what I did. But as I said to him, well, you're saying I've saved four lives. No, it was you that took on board what I said and you save their lives. You yeah. took it on board. You could have ignored me. You could have just said, oh yeah, there we go. Another person talking waffle. Right? No, you listen carefully as a professional, took it on board and you went and saved four men's lives. Yeah. And with that, um, you know, and for me, if that could have been repeated all over the country, you imagine how many men's lives you're going to save. Yeah. You know? In your role as an ambassador, have you seen any, an improvement in monitoring, you know, prostate cases? What I would say is we need a national screening program. That does not exist here in the UK. Hmm. Until we get that, I personally, and this is a personal um, statement coming from me, that I don't think we're going to really get to grips with these um, abnormal figures, okay? Even when you look at who's dying, you, you, you know, you look at Caucasian men, one in 22, 
Um, you look at Asian men, one in 44. You look at black men, one in 12 will die from it, are yeah. dying from it, you know? So something needs to be majorly done. They say to us, there's a reason why we don't go for um, screening because of this, because of that. They've got so many different statements that they make. But when you look at the USA and see what they're doing and see that that has helped, then you've got to wonder to yourself, well, why aren't we doing it here? There are those in favor of it. There are those who are not. And maybe a, a major investigation, a major inquiry into how this can benefit us black men needs to, to be had. We've got a lot of black doctors out there. Um, we need to be hearing from them. And, and that's where the trust comes in. We hear from our own community members right, who are in the medical professional and they are saying such and such, then we're going to believe it far more than if we're hearing it from another ethnicity. Um, yeah, so, so I'm, I, I kind of missed and you probably mentioned. So what, what are they doing in the USA then? Well, basically, there, there are screening programs that simply address looking at men way before they get down the route of prostate cancer. So okay. basically you're addressing that the fact that they, they fall into uh, a certain risk group. The risk group is being black. Okay. Um, mm. Having a father that um, had prostate cancer or an uncle, even breast cancer is linked um, in a roundabout way to prostate cancer. So if your mother died of breast cancer, then the possibilities of you getting um, prostate cancer are, are there. Mm. You know, the point is you've got to be able to look in advance such that you can say this man is potentially at risk. If you can grab prostate cancer at stage one, then yeah. the chances of being cured are, well, 99.9999%. Okay? And that's what you're looking to do, rather than grabbing us at stage four or yeah. even stage three. Because then mm -hmm. it's a different ballgame. You cannot operate right at stage four, period. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. you know, the options open to me are lessened as the stage go, stages go up. You don't, you don't, you don't want to be no, getting to that you stage. Don't, you don't. And no, our, our black men's biggest problem is that they hear the stories, they hear how the investigations are carried out into the testing and the investigations are carried out into testing for prostate cancer, DRE, digital rectum examination. Mm. They hear the finger up the rectum and straight away it's... <clears throat> no, yeah, they're not, they're not having that. Yeah. They're just not having it. Mm. And they don't realize that it's that that will save their life. Mm -hmm. yeah. But as I say to, to, to many men, you've got to think outside of the box. You've got to start to think about, if you don't want to think about yourself, then think about your sons. Would you want that to happen to your sons because of your ignorance? Mm. Nah, I don't think so. 
And this is why some of us have to really dig down deep and talk to ourselves and then come up with the answer. You know, something I need to do something about this as a man. Okay. And I need to show my son the way forward and let there be a way forward that works for all of us men. Because those figures, those statistics are no joke. No, honestly, yeah. I mean, the podcast that I've done, yeah, about three or four of those have been, you know, linked to prostate cancer. So, and it's, as you say, it's, it's no joke. I mean, as an ambassador, what's the main hard-hitting advice that you would give to a black man out there who thinks that he may have prostate cancer symptoms? What's the main message that you would, you would get out there? I would want to say, if you are feeling or seeing any of the typical examples, which are straining to, um, to urinate, incontinence, one of the big ones, and that was one of the ones that I failed on, mm. was um, needing to urgently urinate at night. That's a key one. Because for me, a lot of the, I say a lot, a few of the symptoms that were showing, I had, but I put them down to lifestyles. You see, I hadn't been to my doctor for, prior to the diagnosis, I'd been to him for four or five years. Mm. And as such, I know that that's where I got caught out. I should have known better. You see, my mother in 1983 died of breast cancer. Her sister died six months later of leukemia. Mm. And their brother died of prostate cancer five years after that. Mm. I watched one side of my family wiped out through cancer. I should have known better. I should have known come age 50, I should have been actively involved, actively monitoring my prostate. But like many of us men, I was so busy making a living, I forgot how to live. Yeah. And that's the reality of it. And this is what I say to a lot of you men out there. If you don't love yourself, then surely you love your family, you love your sons, do it for them. Okay, oh, that's, that's a, what it's about. Powerful message, man. Mm -hmm. Powerful. That is, um, and that's what I wanted to to get out from you. You know, I mean, so that we can get this message across, and 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 the way that you've put it is, you know, I could not refuse to take that on board. I just couldn't, and that's what I wanted to um get from you and I think I've achieved that definitely no, I, I mean this is one thing I, I wanted to another thing I wanted to ask you because you're not only you're an ambassador you've you've won an award haven't you what award was yes, that um last year I was um, given the award for ambassador of the year for cancer research UK it's a national yeah. award and simply it's with regards to all the volunteering work that I'd done and along with my wife, let's not forget my wife, because yeah. she was an integral part of the whole care process. She was my carer, she was my everything, she was my rock. She wow. was solid through, because when I got weak, she got strong. 
And What's your wife's name? Grace. 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 Big up Grace. <laughs> yep. <Big up> Grace. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Big up Grace. Uh, you know it. Wow. Trust, yeah. Trust me. And, yeah. Um, and to be honest with you, you know, I, you know, sometimes I look at, you know, you look at the definition of the word grace. Yeah. And you can kind of associate it with some sort of angelic being, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, of course you can. You yeah, know? definitely. And she came into my life at a time when, you know, topsy-turvy all over the place. And I needed somebody that could straighten me out let me put it that way to you and she came along she hasn't done a bad job no she hasn't but how could i have bumped into a lady whose father had died from prostate cancer she had nursed him through that journey so you know you look at someone like that because you don't know at the time but obviously as you know you get to know each other and you talk you then find out and you think to yourself, now look at this, I've got that. She's already been through that journey. So she understands. Because mm. I can tell you now, many men that I've spoken to, well, I'm not saying many men, I've spoken to many, but a proportion of those men have sat back and told me, you know, my wife has left me because I've got prostate cancer. <laughs> I don't want to go down, honestly. Exactly. Yeah. I know, I get it, yeah. yeah I know. You know so yeah. when you're somebody special like that, well, take it from me. You hang on. You hang on. Honestly, yeah. No, Grace, um, amazing. Yeah. Um, because the reason why I wanted to ask that, or I mentioned about, you know, your, your award and everything, because obviously you've mentioned earlier on in the podcast about your journey and um, the fact that you, you suffered mentally. Um, you're, you're close to committing suicide and you pulled through just for the listeners as we get to come to kind of a close what helped to pull you through what were the main factors in getting you through that time that period that period of your journey I would say obviously thinking about my children thinking mm. about my grandchildren uh, clearly um, my wife is at the top of the list but yeah you know, all of those people there play an integral part in the process of helping you and healing you, okay? Mm. But also the will and desire to live. You know, I've always said this, never give up, never give in, because I've never seen that written in any book that that's what you should do. And that's how I approached my battle, my fight to um, get through. It was, I wouldn't say it's as simple as that, but that was what helped me, you know, make those choices yeah. and, and really get through. And I, I still pass those same sentiments on to men when I see them. Never, mm. ever give up. Never give in. Mm. You know, yeah. it's not easy, but you've got to do it. Yeah, I mean, that is, again, that, that's powerful. Um, I mean, you know, I've, I've already labelled you the miracle man. <laughs> you, you, are, you are a walking miracle. Um, because I, I hear it all the time at the hospital. Yeah, you, you, I, again, it's not, it's not difficult to label you as, as such because you, you are a walking miracle. 
And I, and I want to ask you, because being the host of Black Men Rise and the Black Men Rising podcast, why do you think Black Men Rising is important, in your opinion? Look, let me explain something to you. I come from old school. I've been there, run amok, run around, etc., etc., etc. I've always been the type of man that wanted to do well for his community, but equally well for his children. Mm. And maybe along the line, I've got a few things mixed up in terms of trying to, to be a better person because surrounding me were too many men going in the wrong direction. Yeah. This is why we need to show that there are men who have done well, who can show the youth different directions than what we saw and what we went through. You have to change that mindset. And this is why I believe Black Men Rising is a start to something wonderful. Wow. <laughs> that's why I wanted to ask that. I mean, that's brilliant, Alfred. I mean, look, you know, I'd label you the miracle man. Here, here's somebody who was close of stage four with his prostate cancer, was told he had a limited time to live, who has beaten the cancer, who's gone on to write two books, who has became an ambassador for Cancer Research UK. And not only that, has won an award for his role. And here you are. I'm honoured to have you on this podcast. I'm honoured to have you here telling your story now because, again, you are another inspirational, powerful, courageous black man. And as you say, this is why Black Men Rise is important because people listening to this now, black men, young black men listening to this, can surely learn something, can surely learn not only about themselves and their path in life, but also, you know, if you're going through a cancer treatment, if you're going through a serious illness, there are ways, these are people who can help you to get through it just by listening and taking on board the messages that have been said and, and that have been put across. And you have put across one amazing message tonight in your journey and in, in your opinion, what Black Men Rising stands for. And I want to thank you for that. You're very welcome. Very, very Alfred, welcome. Thank you. Brilliant. Um, yeah, I want to thank you so much for You're welcome. Thank you this for amazing me. podcast because it's such an easy listen. I, I just sat back in awe and listened to you because I hardly had anything to say. <laughs> no, no, I understand. I understand. And, um, yeah, and I think when that happens, that is a very good thing. <laughs> <laughs> Alfred, thank you so much. Once again, Charlie, Where welcome. Yeah, where can people find you? Um, well, I'm available on um, email assalphasierra.patientadvocate at gmail.com. And you can get me on Twitter is ACC Samuels. So that's S A M U E L S, ACC Samuels. And I'm on LinkedIn, 
at um, Alfie Samuels. So that's linkedin.com forward slash IN forward slash Alfie Samuels. So with those, you can always get me. Uh, brilliant. Um, I've just got to, I've got to applaud that. Pleasure. Absolutely. Alfred, thank you so much. Keep inspiring. Keep up with your amazing work as an ambassador for Cancer Research UK. Keep getting that message out there. And it's amazing. It's fantastic that your role is being linked to Blank Men Rising. Um, and so I can only thank you for that. So very welcome. And you guys keep doing what you're doing. Because what you do is extremely important. And that's, a, you know, for my heart, that's a big plus for you guys. Thank okay. You. Brilliant, Alfred. Thank you and God bless. Bless the to you too. Take care, guys. Yeah, take care, Alfred. Thank Bye -bye. you. Bye-bye now. Bye.